Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. We've all had those incidents we want to forget. A date gone incredibly wrong, losing your temper with your kids, the stupid stuff you did in college when you had five drinks too many. We know how the brain remembers, oh, we know. But how does it forget? For decades, researchers have focused on how the brain acquires information. Their theories suggest short-term memories are encoded in the brain as patterns of activity among neurons. Long-term memories reflect a change in the connections between neurons. What hasn't received nearly as much attention from memory researchers is how the brain forgets. Michael Anderson is a memory researcher at the University of Cambridge. He's been studying forgetting since the 1990s. Forgetting is intrinsically interesting because who we are as people, like when, when we're 80 years old and we're looking back on our lives and like, how did I live my life? Am I happy with who I am and with what I did? All of that perspective on your life is based on what you remember of your life. In light of how important forgetting is to our experiences with memories, Anderson wonders how it is that researchers looking into the neurobiology of memory have never taken forgetting seriously. <laughs> like how, how have we neglected this problem? Oliver Hart studies memory and forgetting at McGill University in Montreal. He says forgetting is really useful. Without forgetting, we would have no memory at all because the problem is if we keep everything around that we see and that we encode, right, our minds would be full with so many things that we would be completely inefficient. Hart says the brain acts like an encoding device. He says it does nothing but form memories during the day. You can test it in your own life. When this evening you would recount your day to a friend, you are able to evoke this memory of the day, which is by that time a long-term memory already, because hours ago, in great detail, perceptual details, very vivid. Yet over time, you forget most of the vivid details. They go completely away. And what survives is some, some essence. Hart thinks the brain doesn't know straight away what's important and what isn't. So it tries to remember as much as possible at first, but gradually forgets most things. Forgetting serves as a filter. It filters out the stuff that the brain deems unimportant, and it keeps the stuff around that the brain thinks are important. Experiments in the last few years are finally beginning to make clearer the nature of that filter. Memory is a complicated subject for many reasons. All creatures have memories, from very simple organisms like sea slugs and insects, up through humans and other animals with complex brains. Differences in how memory works may sometimes go along with those different nervous system architectures. Even within a single species, there can be several types of memory, and they may be interrelated but also centered in different parts of the brain. For example, recently acquired memories in mammals often depend on the involvement of the hippocampus, while longer-term memory can involve more cortical areas of the brain. The mechanisms may vary among those types of memory, too. And forgetting, the functional loss of memories may also come in diverse forms. Past theories about forgetting mostly emphasized relatively passive processes. 
They suggested the loss of memories was a consequence of the physical traces of those memories, called engrams by some researchers, naturally breaking down or becoming harder to access. Those engrams may be interconnections between brain cells that prompt them to fire in a certain way. This forgetting process could involve any number of things. It could be the spontaneous decay of connections between neurons that encode a memory or the random death of those neurons. It could be the failure of systems that consolidate and stabilize new memories or the loss of context cues needed to retrieve a memory. But now, researchers are paying more attention to mechanisms that actively erase or hide those memory engrams. One form of active forgetting that scientists formally identified in 2017 is called intrinsic forgetting. It involves a certain subset of cells in the brain. In their paper that introduced the idea, Ron Davis and Yi Zhang casually called them forgetting cells. These forgetting cells degrade the engrams in memory cells. Davis is a neuroscientist at the Scripps Research Institute in Jupiter, Florida. The forgetting cells idea emerged after he and his colleagues reported giving fruit flies mild electric shocks while exposing them to an odor. The flies quickly learned to avoid the smell, associating it with the shock. Davis and his colleagues looked at a certain set of neurons in the brains of fruit flies. These neurons continuously release the neurotransmitter dopamine onto others called mushroom body neurons. So the experiment that we did that was the key experiment was we trained the animal and we blocked the activity of these dopamine neurons after training and then tested the animals at three hours. We found that when we blocked those dopamine neurons from activity, from releasing dopamine, the animals had much better memory, had about a two-fold increase in memory when we tested them three hours later. And then conversely, we train the animals and we have tools we can activate those that same set of dopamine neurons after acquisition, before retention testing. And when we did that, the animals showed no memory whatsoever. So this observation led us to start thinking about what was going on. Davis and his team proposed that after a new memory forms, the dopamine-based forgetting mechanism begins to erase it. Davis thinks this erasure happens because the cells reverse the structural changes that created the memory engram. The cell's natural inclination is to go back to how they were before they learned the memory, unless the thought is somehow recognized as being important. Then the engram is preserved by consolidating it to maintain a balance between what's learned and what's forgotten. Here's Ron Davis. Maybe the brain is designed to forget. You think about all the information we Zhang, a neuroscientist at Tsinghua University in Beijing, and his team have also successfully manipulated forgetting in mice. In 2016, they looked at the inhibition of a specific protein called RAC1 in the hippocampal neurons. They found RAC1 prolonged the retention of memories from less than 72 hours to at least 120 hours in many cases. 
Increasing the activity of RAC1 reduced the life of memories to less than 24 hours. Earlier work by Zhang's group had shown that RAC1 was similarly involved in several forms of forgetting in fruit flies. Davis and Zhang argued in their jointly written 2017 review that cellular processes mediated by dopamine and RAC1 constantly erode newly formed memories. They wrote that forgetting is mediated by intrinsic forgetting mechanisms, and forgetting may be the default state of the brain. They suggested that intrinsic forgetting may operate chronically at a low level to slowly remove each newly acquired memory, but its strength may be regulated by internal or external factors. Another cellular process that seems to cause its own form of forgetting is neurogenesis, the birth of new neurons in the brain. Davis says previous studies have shown this. If you block that neurogenesis that occurs chronically, the animals will remember better and they learn less as a consequence. And conversely, the same is true. So if you activate the neurogenesis, then you can remove memories more quickly. But the effects aren't all positive for memory, as Paul Franklin and his colleagues discovered while working with mice. Franklin is a neuroscientist at the University of Toronto and the Hospital for Sick Children. We're interested in how memories were formed in particular in the hippocampus. That sort of corresponds to the part of the brain where, in humans at least, we score out sort of episodic memories, what we sort of colloquially think of memories like a last trip to the zoo or something like that. And so the question that we and many others are interested in is you've got these new neurons integrated into hippocampus circuits. How does that impact the ability of the hippocampus to learn new information, make memories? In their experiment, they first allowed the mice to create a memory by training at a task. Hours later, with drugs, Franklin and his colleagues raised the level of neurogenesis in the animals to test whether the integration of new neurons in the hippocampus would affect the stability of that already stored memory. When Franklin's team tested the mice about a month later, their recall of the training was much worse than that of mice that had not had the later neurogenesis boost. Franklin suspects that neurogenesis can complicate the challenge of retrieving prior memories from the hippocampus. You've allowed them to make a memory in the hippocampus, and then you change levels of neurogenesis. The consequence of changing levels of neurogenesis is that you end up, as the new neurons integrate, they rewire the hippocampus. They change the patterns of connection. And one prediction you might make from that, if you go in and start rewiring something, is that any information stored in that circuit might be degraded. Sort of like rewiring circuits when you repair electronics. That's why we back stuff up before we repair our computers. One piece of evidence that supports Franklin's theory came from follow-up work published last year, which showed that the harmful effect of hippocampal neurogenesis is worse for relatively recent memories. Much older memories don't seem to be hurt by it. Franklin's explanation is that older memories are less sensitive to this effect because the brain gradually transfers important memories from the hippocampus to the cortex for long-term storage. So neurogenesis in the hippocampus today is more disruptive for memories from a week ago than for those from months or years ago. Franklin says it's interesting to note that the forgetting produced through neurogenesis is different than the intrinsic forgetting based on dopamine and RAC1 that Davis observed. They occur on different timescales, and so his type of forgetting is a much more rapid form of forgetting, whereas the forgetting that's produced by neurogenesis, 
by remodeling of hippocampal circuits, if you like, is a much more slower, more cumulative process. And the reason that is is it takes several weeks for these new neurons to make new connections in the brain. And so it's the accumulation of those new connections that eventually leads to the forgetting. So we see that forgetting emerges over the course of like weeks rather than in the case of Ron Davis that happened within the course of hours. I mean, we don't know the answer to this. There might be interesting reasons why the brain has developed different forgetting mechanisms and mechanisms that act on different timescales as well. When memories are forgotten by whatever mechanism, what happens to them? Are all traces of them eliminated? Or do they persist in some form unavailable to us? A set of answers that seems to apply to at least some types of memory came from work published in 2017 by Robert Kalen Jagaman and Irina Kalen Jagaman, their husband and wife researchers who run a behavioral neuroscience laboratory at Dominican University in River Forest, Illinois. They've been studying how sea slugs form memories for a decade, and recently they switched their attention to the neurobiology of how the animals forget. In the first stage of their experiments, the Kalen Jagaman sensitized sea slugs to electric shocks on one side of their body, but not on the other. Robert Kalen Jagaman says they basically taught the sea slugs to show a bigger reflexive response on the trained side of their body. We basically gave these animals a memory, then we tracked them and saw just as the memory faded, they were less and less able to recall it over the course of about a week. But even though it seemed like the memory had faded, they were still able to relearn it very easily. And this is a universal phenomenon. Some people call it savings memory or relearning memory. It's that even when it feels like a memory's gone, it can just pop back in your head if you're just prompted the right way. You know, like you'd swear you've never heard a song before and all of a sudden all the words come flooding back to you. So with these animals, we gave them just this very weak little reminder and all of a sudden the memory was strongly re-expressed and lasted another day because they had previously had the memory. So we were able to re-express this memory. And that suggests that there must have been something latent in the brain there to build off of. So that's what we went looking for. And we were able to find just this very, very subtle, small set of transcriptional changes, changes in gene expression that were persisting well beyond the memory even though the memory seemed forgotten that the brain had not gone back to normal. The brain was marked in this way. Basically, Kaylin Jagaman says the animal changed its behavior because the nervous system encoded that previous painful experience of the electric shock. Here's his research partner and wife, Irina Kaylin Jagaman. Going back to the models of passive versus active forgetting, our results really support the idea that it's not just passive decay, that everything isn't just gradually, completely gone, something's still around. To find out more about what survived the forgetting process, the Kalen Jagamans and their colleagues looked at gene expression on both sides of the animal's brains. They paid particular attention to about 1,200 genes that previous research had linked to memory storage in sea slugs. They discovered 11 of those genes were still active on one side of the animal's brains, but not on the other. That's even after the animals had apparently forgotten about the shock. It's still unknown why those 11 genes were active and what function they were serving. It's not even certain that their activity directly relates to the forgotten memory. Researchers would have to manipulate those genes to find out. 
But the Kalen Jagamans are excited about the possibility that those genes are connected to memory, either in maintaining some remnant of the engram or in erasing it. The Kalen Jagamans also observed a rise in the sea slug's expression of a neurochemical called formerfamide. That's a compound that works in sea slugs, much like dopamine works in mammals. If so, it's possible that formerfamide might be produced to disrupt memories in a process much like what Davis documented for dopamine in intrinsic forgetting in fruit flies. Here's Robert Kalen Jagaman again. This is a bit of a speculation here, but the exciting thing is that this suggests a model where the memory is still kind of there and that they're producing this transmitter to inhibit it or to disrupt it. For Robert Kalen Jagaman, forgetting seems to be a biological process like digestion or excretion. I'm always super hesitant to go to like jump to immediate sci-fi applications, but you could start to imagine people being able to control their forgetting process so they could dial it up if there were things they wanted to forget. And more excitingly, you might be able to dial it down, you know, and try to make it easier to preserve memories that are important to you. Kaylin Jagaman cautiously speculates that if these findings hold up in humans, future researchers may be able to help people forget bad memories more easily and remember good ones longer. And then again, I, I'm so cautious about this, but most of the neurodegenerative diseases that people are suffering from, it's preserving the information that is difficult, right? Oftentimes, somebody with Parkinson's can learn a motor memory initially, but it just doesn't stick. Or somebody with Alzheimer's might be able to repeat a phone number for a few minutes, but the next day it's gone, you know? So if you could modulate these forgetting processes and make it harder to forget, that would be something. Neuroscientist Paul Franklin and others say manipulating the process of forgetting might also be useful for alleviating post-traumatic stress disorders in which patients fixate on certain thoughts. We have this very strong memory. So it's way too strong. It's going to invade your thinking all the time. You can imagine that, okay, if you can tap into how the brain forgets, perhaps you can weaken these maladaptive memories that you might have in, say, something like PTSD. You can also think about things like an addiction as well, where you have such a strong association between a drug and a place. Neuroscientist Ron Davis says the potential of future applications might depend on understanding all of the active forgetting mechanisms. He predicts that there are probably several of those that are still unknown to science. And then there's the ethical issue. Franklin thinks it's dangerous if you're talking about being able to make people selectively forget things with memory-altering drugs. But he says if it's a drug that promotes general forgetting, there are fewer ethical issues. If you think about it, that's already a side effect of some anti-anxiety drugs today. Drugs already being taken to help the brain. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Dalmeet Singh Chala's full article, To Remember the Brain Must Actively Forget, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Also, the MIT Press has published two quanta books, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire and The Prime Number Conspiracy, available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore.